Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today, as we continue our series in Genesis, He Made Me Human, Dr. Neutfeld teaches us a lesson entitled, Living Without God. So let's begin as we turn in our text to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 24. Of all the attributes of God, Christians often feel most perplexed with the wrath of God. So let's be clear. When we say that God has wrath, we're talking about God's strong, fierce anger, executed in his vengeance, retribution, and punishment of his enemies. The image is that of God at war. Some of us have a view in which we conceive of the possibility of human beings rejecting God, but never of God rejecting us. Books have been written in which we say that it's really okay for us to be angry with God, but we're absolutely dumbfounded that it might be that God would be angry with us. We will often wring our hands trying to explain how it is that a good and loving God should allow pain and suffering in the world, but might find ourselves outraged at the thought that a good and loving God is also a righteous God and that he inflicts pain and suffering on this world to demonstrate his displeasure with sin and in consequence of his white-hot justice. Well, that's not to say that suffering and personal sin has a one-to-one correspondence, for it does not. But it is true that suffering has come into the world because of sin. That's why it's necessary for Christ to suffer on our behalf. So let me suggest some of the problems we might have with the word wrath. First, some of us struggle with the word because we equate it to a person who's out of control, who lets their anger boil over, hurting people unnecessarily, and then sometimes regrets that he can't control himself. Generally, these people are abusers and bullies. So if that's your view of God's anger, let me correct that. God never acts out of keeping with his other attributes. And by that, I mean that God never stops being righteous, wise, all-knowing, patient, compassionate, loving, gracious, and good when he demonstrates wrath. Whatever the Bible means when it speaks about the wrath of God, it means that God's wrath, like his other attributes, are essential to who God is. He's not acting out of keeping with his essential nature when he demonstrates wrath, God is in control. His his anger is righteous, controlled, and directed. Now, in our study of Genesis chapter 3, we've seen first that Adam and Eve fell into sin when they disbelieved God and then expressed their desire to become gods themselves and rebelled against the design God had put into his creation. They sought to hijack God's intention or purpose in the creation. Next, we saw that sin produced death and that we can speak of death happening on three levels. The first is physical death, which is the death of the body, but not of the soul. Physical death tears the body from the soul. The second level of death is spiritual death, wherein a change happens within the soul. From the moment of sin, Adam and Eve changed in their reaction to God. Rather than run to him, they now run from him. They recognize they're naked, vulnerable, and subject to death, but they now find God an unwelcome intrusion into their lives. The last level of death is judicial death, in which God has now changed his relationship to the man and the woman. Rather than entering into the garden every day to commune with them, what we will see today is that God enters into the garden to curse the man and the woman. God has entered into the garden, and he is about to express his wrath. 
So let's start with our text, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see when God comes into the garden in judgment, we notice that judgment begins with the serpent. And it is at this moment that we see that there is a mercy for the man and the woman. For Satan is the enemy of the human race. He promises one thing and then he delivers another. He promised Eve that she would become a god in her own right, but instead she will die. And furthermore, she will witness murder and betrayal and lies and the death of others, and misery will mark her children. But interestingly enough, as God comes to express his displeasure and wrath, he begins not by cursing the man and the woman, as we've seen. Rather, wrath begins with the cursing of the serpent. At first, the curse seems to fall upon the physical form of the serpent. Did the serpent first have legs before this event? Well, that might be a natural assumption, but we're not told that it is the case, only that the physical form of the serpent is to remain the lowest and not the highest of all the creatures. But in the next verse, in verse 15, we come not only to a curse, but also we find in this verse one of the great Old Testament promises of hope for a sinful and fallen humanity. First, God promises that he will impose upon the serpent or upon Satan himself a perpetual state of hostility between him and the woman. That means there will be no alliance between Satan and the woman. Satan may have deceived the woman to join him in his rebellion against God, and Satan will continue to rage against God's purposes in the creation. But the woman, even though fallen and spiritually dead to the things of God, will never ally herself to Satan. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. But then God says something that goes far beyond the relationship of the woman and the serpent. There will be a perpetual state of hostility between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. This now is a curse that goes far beyond the immediate relationship of Eve and Satan. Now, at this point, we need to stop and consider what it is that we've just read. We're told that not only does the woman have offspring, which which is natural, but so does the serpent. See, what can that possibly mean? And who are Satan's offspring? Genesis doesn't tell us directly, although as we watch the drama in Genesis play out, we notice that the human race is divided into two camps. On the one hand are those like Seth, and in consequence of his life, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. They desire their lost relationship to be restored to him. This seems like the offspring of the woman. And on the other hand, we have people like Lamech, who threatens revenge and death to all who dare cross him. He seems like the offspring of Satan. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus uses the same language of the offspring of Satan. In Matthew 13, Matthew records Jesus telling the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And then later, when he's asked to explain what it is that he meant, he says, and I'm reading from Matthew 13, 38, the field is the world and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. 
And again, the evil one or Satan or the devil has children. And in Jesus' parable, the sons of the evil one are those who are intent on destroying the harvest or the gathering in of the great company of God's people. Satan's children try to stop God's agenda. So from this data, it's very important never to say that non-Christians in general are referred to as the sons of the evil one. And we should never use that kind of language to speak about those who have not surrendered their lives to Christ. They are lost, they are dead in sins, but they are not the sons of the devil. But there is a subset of the human race who reject Christ and who are not content to merely reject him, but who use all their energy to try to destroy the work of the kingdom. They persecute believers, they kill them, they drive them from their homes and use all their resources to attempt to destroy the gospel message. And why do they do that? Because they follow their father, the devil. And that's why Jesus called the Pharisees in John 8, 44, children of your father, the devil. The same might be said of Judas Iscariot, who was indwelt by Satan in order to betray Jesus. Now, as Genesis 1 to 11 progresses, we see the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. Now, notice the last line of Genesis 3.15. He, that is, the offspring of the woman, and by the way, please notice that the offspring of the woman now comes down to one singular offspring of the woman who will arrive in the future. He, that one offspring to come, he shall bruise your head. That is, he will crush the head of the serpent and you, Satan, or the serpent, shall bruise his heel. In time to come, a great offspring of the woman would arise and Satan would wound him in a great struggle. And in the great struggle that would arise between them, this one would finally and ultimately destroy the evil one. And with this curse on the serpent, a great hope is born. First, we learn that God will not abandon the human race. Indeed, the human race will struggle against the evil one. That's good news. And second, a strong champion will arise and Satan will be destroyed. And third, there is hope, a hope that would later in the Old Testament become known as the hope of the Messiah. More about that when we come back. In Eden, when our first parents took that one step of disobedience to God, we see the disastrous consequences not only for themselves, but indeed for the entire human race. Now, God entered the garden, not to commune with them, but to pronounce a curse on Adam and Eve that would spread to every corner of civilization up until this present day. And what happened to the serpent is but a foreshadow of the great struggle between Satan and humanity. But what is this hope that is referred to? Well, we'll learn more about that right after this break. Every home depends on God's supply. Back to the Bible Canada relies upon His supply through the faithfulness of our listeners. Thank you for your gifts that allow us to make new resources to help support you in your walk with Christ, as well as sustain our Bible teaching programs. Your support makes this ministry possible. Your generosity allows us to proclaim God's truth. Our families need it. If you wish to support us in a form of a donation, please visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. 
Or you may consider joining our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and have your contribution to this ministry recur on a monthly basis. To find out more about the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and the exclusive benefits you unlock by joining, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. In Colossians 2, 13-15, the Apostle Paul identifies one important aspect of what Christ accomplished on the cross. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he put aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so in the fullness of time, Jesus would fulfill the longings expressed in the curse on the serpent. He was wounded for our iniquities as he was nailed to the cross, but he utterly crushed Satan by redeeming a great company of the offspring of the woman. But in Genesis 3, this event is still in the future. In the meantime, having cursed the serpent, God now turns to the woman. Genesis 3.16 reads, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We notice that the curse on the woman includes two things. The first is that the original joyful call on the couple to be fruitful and multiply now becomes mixed with pain. Imagine, if you will, the number of women who have died in childbirth over the history of humanity. See, I'm thankful that in our day, God has provided a coat of skins, medical technology that would provide the woman with a measure of safety. But the pain in childbearing remains. The second half of the curse is often misunderstood. What does it mean that the woman would desire her husband, but he would rule over her? Now, first, please know that the word desire is actually a word that is infrequently found in the Old Testament. But for our purposes, that rare word occurs again one chapter later in chapter 4, verse 7. This is in relationship to Cain, who is contemplating killing his brother and is in the throes of temptation. God comes to him and says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire, there's our word, its desire is for you. And so the word in 4 verse 7 speaks of a desire to master or to overcome someone. And this is, I believe, how this word is used in chapter 3 verse 18. You, says God to the woman, as he curses her, you shall desire to master your husband, but you'll not succeed in this. He will instead rule over you. You know, so much has been said here, but for the sake of brevity, the curse seems to indicate that the harmonious relationship between Adam and Eve would be broken. The joyous role of the woman as the helpmate would degenerate into a power play, into misunderstanding, and into harm. And then having cursed the woman, God now turns his sights on Adam and reserves the most withering curse for him. I'm reading Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's hard not to compare this situation to the earlier one. In Genesis chapter 2:15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Or in Genesis 1:26, Let them have dominion over all the earth. See, the great joy that was given Adam to be engaged in productive labor for the glory of God in the ruling over his creation is now turned into an earth that does not willingly yield to his dominion. The abundant earth now yields thorns and thistles. Adam now is given a future of hard, frustrating, and difficult work that will consume his energy until he sinks into the dust of the earth from which he was taken. The application of this is felt everywhere. While there are a great many people who do find work fulfilling, there are also a great many people who find work to be tiring and frustrating and wearying. A common conversation among many is that they would like to do something else if they didn't have to work. Work includes stress and long hours and and frustration. As the human story begins to develop in Genesis, slavery enters into the picture in which work becomes servitude. Famines indicate that the ground is not productive as it once was. Instead of work being an expression of creativity, it becomes an attempt to survive. But what of the joy that many people do find in their work? See, it cannot be denied that many of us gain a sense of meaning from the work which we do. But consider what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 2, 18-19. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Indeed, this is the reality of the curse. However difficult work might be, and whatever challenges you might overcome, in the end, you sink into death, and all that you have accomplished is lost. And so the man and the woman are both cursed. Futility will mark their ways, sorrow, pain, relational troubles, difficult work. Indeed, this is the life lived without God when he no longer enters into the garden walking in the cool of the day. This is the life lived on our own, following our own designs. This is life lived under the curse, under the wrath of God. As Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, when he describes our lives before we knew Christ, he says, we were by nature the children of wrath. But as we have noticed at the beginning, God does not exercise wrath without at the same time exercising his other attributes. And so we find in this passage a description of mercy. Let's read Genesis 3, 20 to 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now here we see two expressions of mercy. The first is the honor which is bestowed on Eve. The name Eve means life giver. She is still given the honor of the mother of the human race. The second expression of mercy are the garments of skin in which God commits himself to cover over the harshest aspects of their nakedness. Many a Bible teacher will point out another level of meaning here. 
The grace that is extended in the coat of skins comes through the death of an animal, and this theme would eventually carry itself over into the later sacrificial system in the temple and the need for death to atone for or cover over sins, finally leading to the story of the death of Christ as the perfect lamb who clothes us from the ravages of sin. But after these two expressions of grace, the chapter ends with a most sobering note. Verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The sobering truth now descends on Adam and Eve. They're expelled from paradise, and they will not eat of the tree of life. Life will not be ideal. Indeed, at times, life will be filled with horror, want, hatred, and death. Disease will find a place in the human family. An angel now guards the way, and the pathway back to God's immediate presence is now hidden forever. Man will now live without the sound of God's voice, and yet he will continue to be made in God's image, and therefore he will continue to have the desire to worship. And so to fulfill this desire, idolatry will follow, because man now knows good and evil in an experiential way. Evil is not quickly dealt with. Once one submits to evil, evil becomes a part of life, and great moral sins both against God and against one another lie just ahead. From Genesis 3 until Revelation 22, human beings now live with a deep sense that things aren't the way they should be. But as successive generations come and go, the memory of Eden grows ever more faint, and yet the deep inner sense that something is wrong grows ever more acute. In the first three chapters of our Bible, we are given the grand explanation of what life is, created for God, desperately fallen from grace, yet in the midst of all of this, God has never given up His purpose, and He extends a promise found in the person of Jesus. John, thanks for your message today. And it's an important thing because you talk about the wrath of God. Could you help us understand that just a little bit more? Yeah, it is important for us to put all of the attributes of God together and never assume that God is not wrathful, even as we would never assume that he's not loving. Uh, but to put those two matters together, both love and wrath, is difficult for some of us, but I think it's hopeful as well. When we see God cursing the human race, we see him interjecting hope at the same time. So God's wrath, at least in the present hour, before the final judgment, is intended to lead us to repentance and faith in him. So there's always, at least before death, a great hope found in the wrath of God. The reality of our world, the evil, sickness, pain, suffering, can all be explained by God's wrath that was poured out in the garden when man fell into sin. Yet we've learned today that the mercy of God, His grace, still prevails in this story. There's a promise yet to be fulfilled of the one who will ultimately destroy the power of evil and Satan himself. Hopefully you've been encouraged and gained some insight into our study with Dr. Neufeld. Be sure to join us again tomorrow for the continuation of our series in Genesis, He Made Me Human. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. What makes a family? 
Family is a bond of body, heart, mind, and soul. And one way to nurture spiritual growth with our families is to share in a time of devotion. Homes are helped by a time and place to talk about the things of God. Family devotions may seem daunting, but help is on the way. This month, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will release a new family devotional, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents looking to provide spiritual leadership in their homes and for their families. Back to the Bible Canada believes these times of sharing together are critical for the spiritual growth of the family. So visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 to request four minutes for frazzled families. And we'll send you and your family this helpful tool for free.